Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with Keith Lowell Jensen. Here we are. Keith Lowell Jensen presents the Keith Lowell Jensen Show with your host, Keith Lowell Jensen. And that's me. Uh, Glad to be here again for episode 17. We have a great guest today, my friend, the photographer, Ken Walton, and we'll get to him in a moment. But uh, first, let me say hi to my producer. How are you doing, Joe? Good. We still have our wonderful sponsor, Burley Beverages. And uh, you know what, man? My um, my soda machine ran out of gas. Oh, you're gonna drink a flat? I got. Burley. I actually have no. I'm gonna make you drink it. I have one oh. bottle. <laughs> I have one bottle of gas that fell behind this big cabinet, and I don't know how to get it. And it screwed up my whole system of like mailing the empties in and getting the refills and everything. So, um, anyway, when the what I'm getting at is when the podcast is done, I'd like you to come over and move a cabinet for me. <laughs> I know you're handy at that kind of thing, but what do you got? What do you got there to drink today? Okay, so I still have some of the shrub that I tried the the mandarin elderflower. Okay, so um, a shrub for anyone that doesn't know is kind of an old timey like it's a vinegar. Uh, it's it's like a soda syrup, but there's vinegar in it, and it's kind of weird. Yeah, I don't even know how it's made at all, and it tastes like a little bit like vinegar, but it's just this stuff is so good. And I'm doing something kind of fun. I got some grapefruit flavored sparkling water. And I'm mixing that with it. So okay, I'm making a concoction here. All right, no booze this time. No booze. It smells amazing. Huh. All right, drum amazing. roll, please. It tastes, it tastes amazing. Does the grapefruit goes well with it? Say the flavor oh, of the yeah. shrub again. It's mandarin elderflower. Okay. We tried to figure out what an elderflower was last week, but I have no clue. I forgot to Google it. Uh, it's, I think it's a flower that's uh, like been around longer than the other flowers. has a certain <laughs> amount of authority. Um, yeah. All right. So Burley Beverages, uh, wonderful company based right here in Sacramento. They're at burleybeverages.com. They are our sponsor. They make artisanal gourmet soda syrups and old-timey shrubs. Uh, they will also give you 15% off of your order from their website or at the Burley Tasting Room on Del Paso Boulevard, where they are doing all of the social distancing good stuff if you want to go by there. Um, If you use the discount code KLJRULES, R-U-L-E-Z, KLJRULES, all caps with a Z at the end instead of an S. Uh, (laughs) And that was their idea that that be the discount code. I did not call them up and go, hey, um, won't you say I rule, dude? Um, All right. Thank you, Joe. We got Cheers. that out of the way, uh, man. So I have uh, I've been knowing Ken Walton, uh, and even before that, the Walton family for ages now here in in Sacramento. Uh, let me give you Ken's official bio now, but I tell you, it doesn't do this guy's life story justice at all. Ken Walton is a San Francisco-based street photographer and the founder of Street Photo San Francisco, an international street photography festival currently shuttered due to this darn pandemic. He has lectured about street photography and shown his work at venues around the world. He's also the father of an 11-year-old daughter and an avid cyclist, traveler, and scuba diver. Hello, Ken. How are you? Hi, Keith. Uh, great, to, uh, great to be here. How are you? Good. And I've got, I, I usually step backwards into people's childhoods first. But before we do that, how, would you just give us the short definition of street photography? Oh man, that's uh, that's a tough question. I mean, you can ask people, uh, and everybody will give you a slightly different answer. But basically, it's, street photography is really just you know photos 
taken. I, I, I say uh, photos taken of strangers in public without permission. Um, <laughs> that, that's so, my definition of it. I'll, I'll, I'll just say that. But it's, it's anything that's out there that's unplanned, candid, not staged. People aren't posing. You're just taking pictures of life out in the world as it exists. doesn't necessarily even have to have people in it, but maybe some evidence of humanity. All right. Do, is this a heated subject? Do people at the, the festivals and stuff ever be like, "Whoa, that guy's not even a street photographer? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Is... People, people argue about it all the time. I mean, some people like to take uh, street portraits where they find interesting looking people along the streets and they ask them to pose for a picture and other people see that as not candid at all. Some okay. people like to use flash on the street. Other people, you know, um, a, a very famous photographer once famously said that's like uh, taking a pistol to a theater. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot of contours and parameters and people have very strict rules that they apply to their own and, uh, others and not everybody. And others, right. Yeah. Really. We're all just out there, uh, mostly not making money, uh, trying to make art out of, uh, photographs of, of the world at large. I think that's the important part is the, uh, not making any money. (laughs) yeah that's what makes it an art i guess right that's what defines me as an artist (laughs) so uh so you grew up here in sacramento yes i did uh right out in the the north suburbs uh fair oak carmichael and and did you start your life there yeah i was actually born at mercy general oh okay yeah so so right from the beginning and uh big family how many brothers we we there were um I have three brothers, so there were four boys growing up. Um, and Any then, sisters? Um, about a decade ago, I found out I have a sister that I didn't know about. So, oh, uh, that's always fun. That was a surprise, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I, It's funny, I know other people who uh, had similar situations since then as a result of these DNA tests that people are taking. Right. Um, and in my case, it was a little before that, but this was uh, my dad uh, had had a daughter before he met my mom and, um, you know, hadn't been in touch with her through the years. So yeah. Um, four siblings that I, that I have. So, and, and three of us, uh, were around all the time growing up. Yeah. And where are you in the lineup? Like in in the house uh, growing up? I'm number two out of the four. Okay. So, uh, and I was buddies kind of with, uh, (laughs) with your brother, Matt. Uh huh. Yeah. And he was a a wild man. I say kind of, because through high school, he was more kind of a rival. He often liked the same girls I did, and that caused tension. Uh, I actually didn't know you went to to Del Campo. I didn't. You didn't. I know went. That. Yeah, you I went to Oakland. But your brother was people. that much of a dog. He didn't just stick to his own high school. That's right. That's he was right. cruising for girls at the other high schools. Even right. this guy. Right. Right. Yeah, and he was such a bad boy. He had the long hair. I remember he tattooed ILS on his hands. I think it was yeah. a girl's initials, but. Like whenever one of our friend's parents would ask him, he'd be, he'd tell them it stood for, I love Satan. Yeah, that, that was, uh, that was his joke. Um, <laughs> that took, it took a long time to remove that tattoo. <laughs> um, and it was very expensive and painful because Matt is in, in, in addition to being a bad boy, he's also uh, a very meticulous perfectionist. So right. he gave himself the equivalent of a prison tattoo with like a needle, you know, by himself on his hand, but it was like perfect. It was like deep <laughs> and dark, and the letters were straight. The font was correct and consistent through the whole thing. Um, yeah, so so he, he was a bit of a wild man when he was when he was younger. Yeah, he's he's settled down now, but I think he's still kind of got that spirit inside of him. 
So what were you like back then? I mean, maybe, oh God, less of a wild man like him, uh, but kind of kind of equally rebellious in my own way. Uh, and what was your way? Well, so, I mean, I, I'm actually the only one of my brothers to graduate high school in the traditional way. Right. But, um, I graduated high school by the skin of my teeth. I believe I had a 1.85 GPA. Oh my God. Coming out of high school. And as a matter of fact, I, I'm pretty sure I was the maledictorian of my class, meaning <laughs> the lowest GPA of anyone who, who actually got to walk and, and put on the cap and gown. So I, I barely made it out. And, uh, that was just, it wasn't due to lack of ability. I had good SAT scores. It was just complete, you know, willful, uh, failure, I guess. And, and, you know, an inability and, and, and a lack of desire to, to conform to what everybody wanted me to do. Would anyone so, who knew you back then expect that you would end up involved in the arts? Were you an artsy kid? You know, yeah, kind of when I was pretty young. Um, I, I actually used to say I wanted to be an artist. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I loved to draw and create things and then, I took graphic design in high school and, you know, kind of thought I might go into commercial art of some sort. And, um, you know, as I was just getting horrible grades and, and trying to keep my head above water, uh, I didn't really have a lot of direction. I didn't right. end up doing that, but, but I don't think people would have been too surprised that I that ended up kind of having this as a pursuit. Now, uh, you, so you walked, you, you graduated and then uh -huh. did you, did you take that, you know, year in between or did you go straight into college? I, um, uh, well, so I had, you know, really horrible grades. So the only option was community college and I was really afraid that I, you know, staying in town, continuing to live at home, or even if I just moved out with friends somewhere, I was really afraid of, uh, continuing down that path of just, messing around and not doing well in school. And okay. I, I knew this is kind of my last chance. So I actually joined the army and I was, I was a medic in a, like a mash hospital for two years. I had no um, idea. Yeah. Back in the, back in Reagan's peacetime military buildup, he was giving away a lot of money for college and they were advertising that all the time. So I just, I, I needed a reboot, a full reset. So I dove headfirst into that and uh, I loathed it. I, I, I was not very good at it, um, but it did do the trick. I got out in two years, a little less. They were letting us out early if we didn't rain less. And that's when I started college, when I was uh, when I was 20. And I had you know enough money that I could work and pay my way through without getting too settled in, in loans. Where did you go in the military? Uh, I was, uh, I stayed stateside, kind of okay. in retrospect. I sort of wish I'd tried to go overseas, but I... Uh, Basic training was Fort Knox, Kentucky, and then I did my medical training down in Texas, in San Antonio, and then I was stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington, up by Tacoma, which is just gorgeous. It was a great place, and uh, it was really kind of a fun place to be at that age. We used to hang out up in Seattle and see shows all the time, and we would go up to Vancouver because the drinking age was younger and right. friends, and, and it, wasn't, it wasn't such a bad place to be for a couple of years. Uh, physically, I didn't like being, you know, I felt trapped in the army and was eager to get out. All my friends were in college, but. But it didn't lead you into a medical career. We're, we're starting to get into the part of your biography that I'm more familiar with now. Yeah. And so, it's crazy. 
I, I, I'm strapping in for the roller coaster we're about to go on. I keep waiting for this American Life or someone to get a hold of this story because it, it gets nuts. All right, so you go to college and you end up studying law. Well, yeah, I, I, I actually got a degree in urban planning. Oh, really? At, uh, Cal Poly Pomona, yeah, and I was really interested in that, um, kind of academically. You know, like I liked, I liked the subject. I like thinking about it. I like reading about it, but. Most of the work was just working for public agencies as a planner. I still have you know friends in college who've done that this whole time, and uh, you know they worked their way up through city planning departments in Southern California. And that part, you know, I tried that. I was an intern at a couple of cities down in in LA, and um, it just was kind of grim. The whole city government thing. Um, I, I my mind doesn't really like operate at that speed, and right? Office politics or anything like that. So. Um, I, I got out, I wanted to get out of Southern California, I moved back up, up Sacramento, had a kind of a dead end job, um, applied to law school once, didn't get in. I moved to Korea for a little while and taught English in Seoul and then, uh, came back and I, I got into law school on the second try and yeah, I went to law school, um, Okay, so how old are you at this point? I mean, now, <laughs> by now you've been in the military, you've gotten a degree in urban planning, you've gone to Korea. Yeah, I was, um, let me see, I I guess I was, I graduated when I was um, like about 25 or four. And then I think I started law school when I was 27 or okay. just shy of it. Yeah. So, um, and how much and time did you spend here. in Korea? What's that? How much time did you spend in Korea? Oh, I was just there for one summer. You um, know, I, I've always wanted to go to China or to Korea, uh, s- somewhere where you can teach English, even if you don't speak the local language. Yeah. I remember that being a, a big opportunity that a lot of my friends took when, you know, I was before I was 20. It just now occurred to me that I can do that in retirement too. Like, so now that that's my retirement plan. So I'll have to hit you up for more details on that later. Yeah, I'm sure it's changed a lot, but you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I taught at a little school for, uh, it was like an after school program for kids. And, um, the Koreans are just, they're super into education. They push their kids really hard just as part of the culture. And, um, the, college exams at the time had just added a, like a, an oral exam for, for English for college admissions. So parents were scrambling to get their kids into these, these uh, talking programs. These, so they were putting them after, after school to like speak with native speakers and stuff like that. So okay. the, the classes were one half with me, but zero experience teaching ESL. Right. One half with a Korean American teacher who spoke both languages for, uh, like fluently. I found out after I'd been there about a month that um, I made way more money than the oh. bilingual teachers. <laughs> That's and I, had this, I had this moral outrage. It was, I mean, no one was saying white privilege back then, but um, like, that's kind of what I felt. I was like, what? That's not fair. You speak both languages. I, I only speak one and I have no idea what I'm doing and I'm making twice as much as you. Right. Um, I mean, you didn't give him any of your money, but you were outraged. <laughs> yeah, I took the money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you so you get back here, you get into law school, right? Um, Goes well, you pass the I, bar. I got to move to San Francisco. I uh, I was I was at uh, Hastings down here, University of California, Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. And did you fall in love with San Francisco at that point? 
Yeah. I mean, I already was, you grew up in Sacramento, you know what it's like, like amazing city for us. This was like the big city that right. everybody would like to come to, to, to go see shows. And maybe you could get to live here someday, but Oh God, it's so expensive. And, but, but even now that I've traveled, I mean, it's not just that it was the city closest to us. It's an amazing city. Yes. It, it's, we had this world-class city that wasn't very far away and it had just such a rich history and a, a great culture. And, you know, I'd always wanted to live here. And, uh, so I was just really, I was, I think, more excited about that than actually starting law school. Um, I lived in the Tenderloin, really close to the campus, my, my first year, which was uh, fun. <laughs> yeah, especially back then. I mean, it's still pretty rough yeah, with it, gentrification. Uh, <laughs> it actually might even be rougher today, strange as that sounds. as much. Uh, maybe, maybe because everything's concentrating. <laughs> That's exactly what's happened, yeah. And... Um, so, yeah, I was, you know, I kind of like muddled my way through law school. I made some good friends and I loved living in the city. And I just, I, you know, I liked going out. We moved to the, uh, I, a couple of friends and I moved to the Mission District after my first year. And that was kind of like, we were right in the heart of what has now become like this really popular, really cool neighborhood with tons of great restaurants. And it was all starting to kind of happen and take off back then, but it was early and so it was just, there were so many bars and so much live music, so much back then it was cheap food. Uh, so it was, you know, I was having the time of my life in my late twenties. And uh, unfortunately, um, although I had did really, I had done really well in, in college, uh, which got me into law school. I, I, I just was very uninterested in learning the law and I didn't have the stomach for the competition that, uh, that goes on in, in that kind of environment. So I got very mediocre grades. I didn't almost flunk out of law school, but uh, they were, um, I, you know, a lot of people talk about being the top 10% of their class. I like to say I was in the top 60% of the class, <laughs> um, which impressed no one. Um, and somehow though, I managed to get uh, a job after law school back in Sacramento at one of the big firms there. Um, and so I was very kind of, uh, um, I guess ambivalent about coming back home. I mean, I, I liked Sacramento, but I really had fallen in love with, with San Francisco, but, um, this is a good job. This is, it, it was a pretty good job. I mean, the, you know, I, I, the firms didn't pay as much in Sacramento. Uh, people were making quite a bit of money down here in the city and, and they, they weren't, you know, the jobs just were not quite at the same level. So it was still a good job though. It was, you know, I, I, had big clients and, and a, a lot of uh, interesting work at my disposal. And I got to work in an office downtown on the 28th floor. And um, yeah, so that's where I was when I was kind of 28, 29, I guess. Is, but your, yeah. your heart wasn't in it. My heart very much wasn't in it. Um, and and uh, that's why you turned to a life of crime. That's why I turned to a life of crime. The, <laughs> the next chapter. <laughs> um. So, yeah, I, I, I had known this guy in the army and uh, his name was Ken also. And uh, he had never really actually he gotten in trouble for selling LSD after I got out of the army. <laughs> so I'd heard rumors about what had happened to him. And I guess he went off to like an army prison for a while and um, he got out and we weren't in touch at all. But, but one day he just showed up in Sacramento and um, looked me up and we hung out and he seemed to be 
doing really well. He had a really nice house with cool furniture and he had a nice car and he had kind of everything that I hadn't really acquired yet. And he was doing all this buying and selling fine art somehow. His house was like full of all these big canvases and it's something I knew nothing about. It's kind of fascinating. And um, this was right around the time when eBay was starting up and getting really popular. It was sort of the, the, the latest thing back then in the, in the early internet, back when things were still called dot-coms. And everybody was kind of crazy about eBay and buying things at auction. He was starting to auction off his art on eBay. And this was a fascinating thing for me. And he showed me some of the ones he put up and how much they sold for. And he told me how much he paid for them. And um, he was making a lot of money. So he offered to show me how to do it. And I, I, um, I went out and I started buying stuff and trying to resell it. And, and so where are you buying these paintings? Mostly um, antique stores, thrift shops, um, estate sales. Okay. And, you know, if you were writing, this is not the kind of thing you could buy. And somewhere maybe downtown Sacramento wasn't a very good place to shop because people kind of knew what they had. Or you certainly right. wouldn't want to stay away from San Francisco. But you could go around to small towns up and down the Central Valley or in the foothills. And you could just find little things that would photograph well. You could put them up and you might pay 30 or $40 for them. And eBay was such a seller's market at the time. It might go for several hundred. And Especially if it happens to yes. look like it might have been painted by someone well-known. Yes. So, so uh, early on in this process, I had a painting that um, I bought, God, I bought it somewhere around Sacramento at a little junky antique store. And it had a signature on it that I, I couldn't really interpret. It looked kind of scratched on there. It looked like Gila to me. And it was just a big, thick, kind of ugly impressionist. I forget, it had a boat on it or something like that. And um, I put it up and a bunch of people speculated that this might be by an artist called named Selden Gile. And the signature looked a little bit like his, but the guy who sold it to me didn't offer it to me as a Selden Gile. It just had this similar looking signature. I think I paid two or 300 for it. I ended up selling it for about 3,800 or something like that. And, uh, and so you're not, this part, this isn't illegal. You're not selling it as, this artist's work either. Yeah, You're letting people no, speculate. Yes. I had no idea that it was going to be mistaken for this guy. I wasn't trying to, I never heard of him. I, had, I wasn't trying to fool anyone. But, um, but was there shill bidding going on at that point? Uh, uh, I can't remember. There might've been a <laughs> so okay. In the early days of eBay, uh, people could bid on their own items. Like if they didn't want them to sell for too little, and they, they, they were panicking. They could put in a bid themselves to sort of say, I'm not going to sell it for less than this. And some okay. them. And they made that against the rules. In the traditional auction world, this goes on. It's called show bidding. And you could have something up for auction. And you or a friend of yours or your kid or whatever could be sitting in the audience kind of egging people on by actually making bids on this uh, in order to like drive up the overall price. It's usually, it's illegal in most states. It's usually fair, a very minor infraction, maybe a misdemeanor some places. It's not a federal crime. 
Okay. We used to, so this friend, Ken and I, and there was this other guy that he knew, we used to bid on each other's items. And sometimes we would do it with alternative IDs. So these would kind of pump things up a little, but the very first time one of these paintings went up and got mistaken for something much more valuable. uh, I think this guy, this other, this friend of mine, Ken noticed this and he's like, look, you didn't even like advertise it as having been done by Selden Gile. These people all took a chance Right. They were competing against each other. They were trying to take advantage of you by not telling you that they thought it was a Selden Gile. Right. Look how much it went for. So basically, long story short, I didn't really realize this, but he was starting to like put cryptic signatures in the corners of paintings and put them up. Put, putting, he, adding the signatures himself. He, he most likely was. Yeah. I, mean, I never saw him do it. Okay. But, uh, you know, after a certain number of them, you know, a dozen or something like that over the course of a year, it started to get pretty obvious. And so <laughs> he was, he would sell things on there as somebody who kind of knew about art. And so he had this um, kind of reputation as somebody who was trying to sell legitimate art and knew something about it. I, however, as a beginning seller, a newcomer, an unsophisticated seller, really didn't have any idea what I was doing. So he would pass these things off to me and say, here, why don't you sell some of these? We'll split the profits. So, these things just started going for more and more. Um, there can be an advantage to you selling it because people can then think that they've got someone who doesn't know what they have. Right. So in the same way that you, when you bought them, you'd go away from the city center because hopefully people that had them didn't know what they had. Exactly. Everybody's looking for the unsophisticated seller uh, that they can take advantage of. Right. So, and that's the role you're playing. There's people out there, you know, I heard a story recently about somebody who got uh, an inherited ring appraised and they thought it was really valuable and it was, a, it was, they were told that it was actually not very valuable at all. And the guy was just trying to buy it from them for way less than it was worth, really. And this is what people will do. They're always looking for something that's worth, you know, way right. more than, than and, they can pay. So, And this is what pawn shops have done for years. Yeah, I, I imagine. I mean, everybody's... This is this is like the you know the underbelly of used things, right? Right. Um, you see, and now they've got reality shows about this, and people trying to take take advantage of other people and get great deals. So, yeah. Long story short, this just started to mushroom, got bigger and bigger, and you know, eventually, I tried my hand out of myself, and I found a painting. This is a year in. I found a painting in a thrift store down in the high desert of Southern California that looked a little bit like, uh, like a late fifties work by an artist named Richard Devencorn, whose work I really like. And I, I took a pen, uh, a real light wash of watercolor. And I wrote RD 52 down in the corner, which is how he signed things. And um, I put that up on eBay and I made up kind of a story, made myself sound especially unsophisticated with intentional grammatical errors. And it was just, it looked too good to be true to anyone who looked at this painting. Was, looked, was this, was this a rush at the time? Like, I mean, what were you feeling as you did this? Were you nervous? Well, was it exciting? Was it an adrenaline thing? You know, I think it was kind of all of those things. And, um, I think, you know, the thing about getting wrapped up in something like this too, like, you, you've got to have like a, uh, 
you got to build up like a tolerance to taking advantage of people. You got to soothe yourself somehow. I did anyway, by telling myself that anyone who would buy this is just trying to take advantage of me. Right. Uh, who doesn't know what he has. And so there yeah. <laughs> you're there the Dexter the of art fraud. You're, What's that? you're the Dexter of art fraud. He only kills other serial killers. You're just taking advantage of other jerks. <laughs> yeah. I had to, I had to, yeah, that's how I rationalize it. You know, I had to let okay. uh, concoct this, uh, this rationalization in my head. And anyway, this thing ended up over the course of a week um, with plenty of show bidding, which it didn't even need because people were out there bidding on it um, a lot themselves. Uh, it, it auctioned for $138,000. Which you're now, you're, you're pulling a little scam, adrenaline exciting, whatever else. I don't think you wanted it to go that big. Well, no. I mean, I didn't ever envision that it would go that big. It was, I was like in way over my head at that point. Uh, Are you wishing you could undo it, take it back? Wishing I could undo it, wishing I could take it back. The, you know, the New York times caught on to this and had a story about it. It was in the wall street journal that day. And people were starting to kind of look into who I was and finding this- out what I wasn't as unsophisticated here. I actually, it turns out he's a lawyer. <laughs> right without making all these grammatical errors it, oh it turns out he's not actually married he doesn't have a kid um and i it, wanted to just so they're already the stories are already getting suspicious stories are already getting suspicious but, but do they still think the painting's real um some people do okay no one's really seen it in person the the person who was the high bidder uh was this uh dutch multimillionaire who, uh, if you looked back at his eBay history, he'd been buying a ton of very likely fake art on eBay, um, really valuable stuff for way less than it was worth. And so he was just really eager to get his hands on this painting. And I told him, look, you know, eBay's canceled this auction because I'm not really who I say I am. And so I think we should just kind of like wash our hands of this. And he's like, no, 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 you have to sell this to me or I'm going to sue you. you oh, know? my God. So I had this pressure coming from him. Meanwhile, knowing the thing wasn't real and having, you know, reporters at my doorstep and follow me to my office and uh, point cameras in my face. And because um, this is a big story. This was the biggest auction to date on eBay or the biggest auction of a piece of art to date on eBay? It, it, it probably was the biggest auction of a piece of art on eBay. Yeah. At that point, Um and it was on the front page of the New York Times three days in a row. <laughs> Just because the, the story unfolded. So the first story was like, oh, look, this hapless guy found this painting in his garage. They sort of took it at face value. Right. And the next day it's like, oh, this guy doesn't seem to be who he says he is. And then the next day is eBay's canceled this auction and kicked him off. And, you know. And then several days later, it was uh, the FBI is now looking into this story. And um, yeah, that's when uh, my life went really topsy-turvy. And uh, <laughs> I had to get an attorney. And um, at that point, I had quit the law firm and I had my own fledging little practice practice that really hadn't gone anywhere yet because I was so busy uh, messing around selling art on eBay. Right. And um yeah, I mean, just to sort of condense the story, not going on for too long, it basically spiraled out of control. And um, 
the feds decided to prosecute and they decided they didn't really want to go after me. They wanted to go after this other guy and uh, they wanted me to cooperate. And my attorney advised me not to at first, but I really didn't want to take any chance of um, going to prison. And um, I knew I'd have to give up my law license. And uh, I just didn't, I, I didn't want to sit there and try to fight this thing because I really had done exactly what they were accusing me of. I, Right. I convinced myself that it wasn't fraud because we weren't claimed. I, I never claimed it was a even corn. I never, I never said it was anything other than what I was saying it was, but there was enough stuff that was shady about it, including the shill bidding that that fits the definition of federal fraud. Good enough. So I pled guilty and um, I agreed to cooperate. And meanwhile, um, my friends, Ken, uh, went on the lam. He just ran and he was on the loose for like three years. Okay. Uh, waiting for him to get caught. And, uh, so I could actually kind of get the benefit of my own sentencing. They wouldn't, they wouldn't let me move on with my life until they actually like finished up with him. So right. he was all over the country living under assumed names. He was pretending to be stone Gossard, um, from Pearl jam. And, <laughs> Like, <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, he he was um, he was he was traveling around with a woman, and he 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 talked her into believing that he was Stone Gossard or Pearl Jam. That's great. Yeah. Instead of just you know using a fake name to be nobody, so you could be invisible, he picks one of the best known people in the country at that time. Yeah, yeah, he didn't really resemble Stone Gossard at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, so he he uh, he was living in the Midwest somewhere under an assumed name, a different one. Um, and he was on his way to a disc golf tournament with a cracked windshield. And uh, <laughs> these are great color details because because it was disc golf, there was marijuana in the car. So right, a, a cop a cop pulled him over for the cracked windshield, saw the marijuana, Wichita, Kansas. That's a crime. Arrested him. Um, and uh, they fingerprinted him, and he came up in the federal database. And so, anyway, they they pulled him back, and um, finally, that was all over. And I uh, had to pay a bunch of money to people, um, and about I don't know sixty or eighty thousand dollars in restitution. It's funny how the the numbers that were so meaningful at the time kind of fade. Yeah, yeah. I haven't thought about this in a long time. I really can't remember exactly. Maybe it was sixty-eight thousand. I don't know. But you I didn't pay much money back. And then you, I got you have money. to pay this money back and you've lost your livelihood because yeah. you can no longer practice law. Right. So um, it would have been uh, it, it would have been a massive blow. But in the, while I was awaiting um, sentencing, I, you know, I couldn't practice law any longer. And I um, my a couple of my brothers are uh, they were programmers or software engineers. And they they told me there are a lot of jobs. I think you'd like this. You have the brain for this. And so I just started teaching myself how to code. And I mean, really they were my mentors. They taught me a lot and I just, you know, buckled down uh, for months and I had almost no money to my name. I was living off of credit cards and I, uh, I got some basic coding skills up to a level where I could actually get a job. And, um, I got a coding job that I had for like a couple of weeks and then they found <laughs> out about the whole eBay thing. And Oh really? Go. Yeah. 
Oh, they fired you because they found out, huh? They yeah, they fired me because they found out that it was um it was actually like a fellow employee who Googled me or something like that. But wow, um, it was actually I was a contractor for the state franchise tax board, so okay. I had a lot of I had access to a lot of sensitive information, and you know they just couldn't have anybody with any kind gotcha. of criminal record there. So I uh, lost my job, went home, and like two days later was nine eleven. Um, and the economy just completely collapsed after this catastrophic event happened. Right. And no one was hiring. So I just was living in the upstairs bedroom, spare bedroom at a friend's house. And I just started building my own software tools and kind of putting a company name on it and, you know, trying to make a go of that somehow. And, and this uh, was hammer tap. This was hammer tap. And I, I, I didn't have, um, I couldn't think of anything else to build, but eBay tools. I'd been selling on eBay for so long. <laughs> and I just started building these software tools that kind of like helped to ease the, the process of selling now, a little bit. Now, it was, is it true that you put your mom's name on the company so as not to raise any red flags and alerts about Ken Walton doing software yeah, where to do with eBay? Were, I mean, some people might have known me by my middle name at that time. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> I think her name may still be on a PayPal account that I used <laughs> Um Yeah, that I mean, I, I was a little, I was shy about running this this company that was in any way related to eBay. While well, I'm still awaiting sentencing on this monster of an eBay crime that I got in a bunch of media. Coverage. But this company is an above board, honest. Everything was above board. They, they they're just tools to help you use eBay. Yeah. That's all it was. And I wasn't selling. I'd been banned from selling, but I wasn't doing any, any of that. Um, I was just making these tools. And I, after doing this for, I don't know, I, it wasn't really bringing in very much money at all, but I was learning a lot as a result of doing it. And then I struck on this really good idea. Uh, I came up with the first eBay market research tool. Um, it could basically scan the eBay website and come up with pricing data. So, you know, eBay kind of purported itself to be the perfect marketplace, open to everyone, transparent, but really it was kind of a black box when it came down to understanding how much things actually sold for. Okay. So I built something that would scan, you know, a particular product or a category and it would, it would give you sell through rates and average sales prices and all sorts of data basically. And this thing really struck a nerve with sellers and I started selling a ton of these. And it like started turning into a company just really quickly. I was making 10,000 a month and then 20,000 a month. Oh my goodness. And it was, um, you know, I started having a few employees and, um, right around this time, eBay figured out that it was, it was I who was running it. I was the, I was the evil little wizard behind this curtain (laughs) and they, they, they didn't want me running it because they just never wanted it to leak that I was doing anything right associated with them so they they want nothing to do with you yes so they sent me a cease and desist letter because the uh the software ran on people's desktops and spidered the ebay website uh which was it was not really invasive spidering but it was sort of technically against their terms of service okay the site in an automatic fashion so because i was creating something that violated that i probably could have fought it um, there's no guarantee they would have won that case, but, um, 
I didn't have the kind of money to spend on that and they knew it. So I ended up finding um, one of my customers was buying this in bulk and then reselling it under a branded name. Uh, it was a company in Utah and um, they ended up buying me out and striking a deal with eBay to, to buy their data. Did you make a deal with them knowing that they're then going to strike a deal with eBay? Is it kind of like using them as a third party? No, see, they, yeah, there was, that was all they like negotiated with eBay first before they bought. Me. Gotcha. And eBay. Said, and were they upfront with you about that? What's that? Were they upfront with you about oh, that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This was all, we worked it all out together. Basically. Good, like, good. The eBay attorney was like, listen, I don't care if you sell this to somebody else. We don't want you running it. So gotcha. they, somebody else bought it. They struck a deal with eBay to, to buy uh, API data from them. And so I moved on from that. And, um, I can, and you, and you did that. quite well on that deal. If I remember correctly. It, yeah, it was okay. It wasn't like, you know, multi-millions or anything like that, but it, it like, uh, it had this one component that paid out, uh, over the years. And it was always, it was just like a nice little supplemental income. And it finally came to an end only just a few years ago. Okay, but so you so you hit rock bottom. You've got yeah. nothing. Your brothers teach you how to code. And then you build a company and sell it for a tidy sum of money in in how long of a period of time? From from first starting to learn to code to selling hammer tap. Oh god. Year and a half maybe. <laughs> I don't know why. Year, year and a half. half. That's amazing. It, it was a right around there. Let's say year, year and a half to two years. That's how I paid off the restitution when it when it came time. Um, I was able to walk in with a check for that. So, um, that was it. My law career was over, and um, I had sold this little company off, and I had kind of a financial cushion. So that was a period of time when I was basically living, I bought a little house in uh, East Sac and I just, I lived in Sacramento for a year, few years and I kept thinking I was going to get something new going company wise. Um, but I didn't, I just kind of worked on my yard and, um, um, those were some, you know, I, I was in a relationship and it was good and it, it was just, it was an okay time. I waited and I finally got sentenced and then, um, yeah, eventually I just decided I kind of was hankering to move back to the Bay Area. And I met somebody down here and we started dating. And that um, got more serious and uh, we got engaged. And that's when I um, sold that little house in ESAC and moved down to San Francisco. And we moved into a, a place in Potrero Hill. Okay, so yeah. I'm, I'm confused in the timeline here. When do you start Click Nation? Click Nation was right around the time I got married. And I guess... So you weren't living in Sacramento when you started Click Nation? Uh, no, it was sort of oh, right okay. after I moved. I guess I did write a book uh, about oh, the eBay thing too. Thank you. I have that in my notes and I skipped right over it. So the, yeah. the story that you just told in mm -hmm. wonderful detail is all laid out in a book called Fake uh, Forgery Lie and eBay. Forgery Fake Lies and eBay. Lies and eBay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and fantastic storytelling. I mean, I found the book really gripping. Well yeah, done. Thank you. Um, it, it was, um, that's what I did. I was trying to remember what I did over those years and like it was several years I was in Sacramento and that's one of the things I did was basically 
put together a book proposal and I, I got an agent and she sold it to Simon Schuster and that happened. It wasn't a, it wasn't a, a, a hit for them at all, but, um, but it, was it, out got, it, it got some good reviews. It, it got, got options, right? It got options. Uh, it's on its second option now. Yeah. Um, okay. So we still might see the film, see some, who, who's going to play you Ken? You know, I don't know, but I tell you, I mean, I, I can't say much, but this guy uh, who optioned it is a playwright and he had the weirdest, most clever, bizarre idea. Um, kind of like, you think, think Charlie Kaufman. Um, okay. I yeah, like that. So it's, 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 it's a great script. And he wrote this script after he optioned it and he immediately sold it. So it actually has been sold to a production company. So it may actually happen. Well, maybe. I mean, it's been optioned by a production company. I don't know like what the next step is or what the odds are after that, but we'll see. So Ken, it's it's anything but a literal telling of the story. Okay. I I, I loved what he did with it. Is this weird for you? Because it's, it's not a chapter of your life that you're probably the most proud of. And yet it is fascinating. And then it's your writing, which I'm sure you are proud of and should be. How, how is that to have that chapter be the chapter that gets this public attention and scrutiny? Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's, it's weirdest now because it, it's, it feels like it was so long ago. And I think, well, at this point, it literally was so long ago. But so much has happened since then. It just seems like another life, you know? Right. Um, so it's kind of strange in that sense. Like talking to you about this whole story here today, it's like the most I've talked about it in, God, years, you know? Yeah. I, just, I mean, everybody I know knows about it. Um, and I'm not, it was so long ago that if I meet somebody new, it's not a story that comes up, you know? It's like, it's, it's, right. like, it's a long story. Like we got to sit down and drink and like, <laughs> hang out for a few hours if I'm gonna really talk about it but um so it's kind of weird in that sense that it that it just is something that was so remote um it's still kind of floating out there it'd be weird if it got made into a movie oh man I'm crossing my fingers that would be awesome yeah. <laughs> uh so so you you continue in in software development and programming Yes. So I hadn't done it in a while and I was, um, I was rusty to say the least and my, my skills were a little outdated, but, um, I, uh, actually the couple who bought my house before I moved down to San Francisco, the, uh, the guy, uh, his name was Mark. Um, and he, um, he had just opened up a yogurt shop in Sacramento (laughs) <laughs> but he also had an he also had an MBA and an undergraduate degree in uh, computer science, and um, we just we got in touch after I, I sold that house, and we we kind of emailed back and forth a few times, and he was told me he was launching a startup, and I talked to him about it. I came up to Sacramento, and we sat down. It looked really interesting, and he was basically looking for somebody to just kind of come on for free to start coding. Okay. Um, for equity. And um, this was in the very early days of social networking applications. Um, so Facebook apps, when they first came out, I don't know, you were probably using Facebook quite a long time ago. Um, and it, it, it's when things like Farmville started first coming gotcha. out. 
people were spamming everyone on their on their feed and sending out invitations to all kinds of games. Right. So he smelled an opportunity here and we just we we got in really early into social media apps and you know started building stuff uh, not just on Facebook but on Open Social which was on all, all of these old obsolete ones we were on MySpace and Friendster and gotcha. ones in other countries you never heard of tribe we had, stuff, we had some stuff go viral hugely you know it was getting used you know 50,000 times a a minute and stuff like that um we were big in Brazil and and other the Philippines and and weird things like that but we were making very little money and we were just it was uh, there was a third guy and he left right in the beginning. And then it was just the two of us for like a year, just scrapping it out. I'm living off savings and this money that I made um, from selling the previous companies, just sort of barely keeping my head above water and the stock market was completely crashing and all my savings was, was dying away. And, um, and my new wife uh, got pregnant and so we had this rent to pay and a baby on the way, and she wasn't going to be able to work for much longer. And uh, Mark and I were just kind of banging our heads against the wall, trying to make this thing work. And we decided to build uh, a game, an RPG. And um, it, it turned into Superhero City. And this right. was um, on Facebook. And it was uh, very much kind of like a game similar to a game back then called Mafia Wars, but we had some innovations and we had flash animated battles. Uh, but Mark was a really, he was a really good personnel recruiter and he could just get people to work for next to nothing for, you know, a hope of being part of something. So we had this little ragtag team, an artist, uh, a programmer who had a bad temper and punched a hole in the wall once. <laughs> um, it just, just, it was, but there was also a couple of really talented guys in that crew too. And, um, we turned out this game in just a matter of a few months called superhero city. And it was a role-playing game where you created the superhero character and you battled against other superheroes and you went on adventures and, you know, it was just classic old RPG tropes, but Mark, uh, going way back to his childhood was an old dungeon master. And so he, he had like, and he played video games his whole life. He just really had like RPG mechanics in his blood. Gotcha. He knew what was fun. And so we, we sold powers. We sold power ups basically, you know, in game currency and you could make your superhero character more powerful if you spent money in the game. And, um, there's something about the idea of fighting a battle and losing it and being able to spend just a little bit of money to beat that guy. Right. Just really resonated with people. And I mean, the first day it made a hundred dollars and then the next day it made $200. And then a few days later it was, it hit 500 and we were making a thousand dollars a day, like just within a couple of weeks. Um, and then, you know, it was like no time at all. Like I, I, I think the third, second or third month the thing was out, it made a hundred grand in one month. And, you know, this was just, it took us by like utter and complete shock. And it, it just really resonated. And this thing kept going for, for years after this. And, 
we built other ones and um, we eventually, you know, we hired more people and um, we got a pretty big office in Midtown Sacramento and I had an office. Oh, you guys moved into the old firehouse, didn't you? Yeah, that was the, uh, well, it was, it was actually, uh, I think it was a mortuary. I don't know if that was ever a firehouse, but it was. Okay. A, it was a news and review building at one it time. It was a news and review building. Yeah. Kind of looked like yeah. a firehouse. It was a red brick. Uh, it, the, the legend was, it was a mortuary. I, I know that at one point. The legend was there was like a crematorium in the basement that had been sealed off. <laughs> Very cool that. building. Yeah, it was, it was a cool building. Great neighborhood. And, um, fun for everyone. And we we were like the only video game company in town, you know? Right. Um, so it wasn't hard to recruit people. And, um, we, we we ended up getting a lot of good, good people coming on board. And, um, yeah, we, we just, we grew really fast. We were kind of under the radar because the games weren't huge. They just really monetized well. Um, they weren't the kind that were spamming all your friends in a viral way all the time. Right. They were just the kind where we would advertise and we pay a couple of bucks to get somebody to come in and play the game. And every, every one out of a hundred would end up spending thousand dollars on the game. So right. it just worked out that way. And um, we had another one that was kind of a fantasy game called age of champions. And we built a couple that flopped Um but we, uh, yeah, this just went really fast over the course of a couple of years. And has your past, d- does anyone care that you were that guy anymore? I mean, at that point, um, no. I mean, I didn't really talk about it. It's the fact that I was running the game company. It, it just didn't matter. You know, everything okay. we, we had. We it had was far enough and, removed. Yeah, we had, we had an, an investor uh, and we had you know, a CFO and everything was like accounted for. And we, you know, Mark and I just, we took salaries. And so there was no way to really, uh, uh, cause any shenanigans, you know, and it was <laughs> entertainment and, uh, people got what they paid for. Um, and yeah, so we, um, I was down here in the city and I was constantly networking cause this is kind of more the, the center of the, the game industry and especially at that point, the, the social gaming industry as they called it. Right. Um, and I met, um, somebody from corporate development at electronic arts at an event. And I just gave him some of our numbers and he wanted to meet the next day. And, uh, we, we started fast tracking toward acquisition talks and we had another and, and Remind me, What are electronic arts big games? Uh, EA. So EA is one of the biggest game companies in the world. They're really kind of a conglomeration, but they, they do EA sports. They make Madden football. That's right. FIFA soccer. Um, but they're not, they're not affiliated with rockstar, right? No, rockstar is another, another big one. They're their own. Okay. Yeah. And then, you know, EA makes, um, they make battlefield. They have done some big star Wars games. They did Jedi fallen order. Um, EA owns, uh, dice, um, over in Sweden. Um, they own Bioware, which makes mass effect and, um, Dragon Age. Um, so this is, this is a huge on. company. This is one yeah, of the they're biggest massive. They're massive. companies they're in the industry all over the world. They, they're worth, they're worth billions. Um, many, many billions. So, uh, they were, they were big and usually they move pretty slow, but we had, we had an acquisition offer come in at the same time from another startup that was bigger than us. 
Um, we were just kind of, we, we fit the right niche at that time because we were really good at getting people to spend money on these free to play games. And right. EA as a big company was really bad at that. So they, they wanted our help. So, um, we got an offer and it, it closed like within a couple of months. And that was, um, 20, uh, God, I guess it was 2011, November, 2011. God, it's been a long time. Can't believe it's coming up on 10 years this year, but, um, yeah, so that, you know, I mean, unlike the first one, it was like a real life-changing event. Um, and uh, uh, you asked a second ago if my eBay past had ever affected anything. And it right. really didn't as I was running Click Nation, this, this game company. But when we got bought, EA got a little skittish about it. And they were afraid of bad press associated with them buying a company that had been co-founded by me. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I actually, uh, I had to come in as a contractor. I got a different deal. It ended up being worth a lot less. Uh, not, I mean, over the long run, you know. I mean, it, it was still, I'm not going to complain, but it, it did affect me um, in some pretty big ways, including the fact that I never really, I didn't really feel fully embraced by the company. Okay. Um, and I didn't feel like I really felt uh, like I fit in and I had a hard time as a contractor sort of finding my authority after we got, got, you know, acquired. So, um, I, I stuck it out at EA for close to two years, but I just didn't like it at all. And I really kind of stopped working after a certain point. All right. So now to just catch up the listeners at home, mm-hmm. the, uh, medic, English teacher, lawyer, uh, art fraud <laughs> uh programmer uh and then what uh, entrepreneur uh now you got now now you're starting over again yeah so but, but with a lot more uh a lot less pressure i'll say yeah, a, lot, a lot a lot less financial pressure it was um you know, I was in a different position than I'd ever been. And, um, right as, uh, right as we got acquired, I went through a really, uh, difficult divorce and there was a a custody battle. I had a hard time working while I was going through that. And, um, after all of that, um, I decided I just kind of wanted to stay home with my daughter when I had her, which was half the time. And, and just, kind of be a dad. And, um, I, you know, I enjoyed that. And, um, but I really did want to find something else to do another venture. Right. Um, and it was right around this time when, um, I was, um, I don't know, sitting at home at night drinking too many IPAs, putting on a few pounds, <laughs> playing a lot of video games. Um, and I was, uh, I, I, I happened to watch a documentary about a photographer named Vivian Meyer. 
Um, have you have you heard of her? Have you seen this documentary called Fun? No, I'll have to look it up. It was uh, nominated for Academy Award that year for for best documentary. It didn't win, but um, it was fantastic. And uh, it's really a story about the filmmaker who discovered this woman's archives um, as much as it is about the woman herself, but so it's finding Vivian Meyer, finding 20, Vivian 2013. Meyer. Yeah. Meyer. I, I'm forgetting how it's spelled, but M A I E R. Yeah. I got it up open in front of me here. <laughs> yeah. I highly recommend, highly recommend this film. It, I mean, it's worth paying for if you have to rent it for four or five bucks, but it's probably free somewhere at this point, but it's, um, it's a fascinating story about, one of these guys who like buys up storage units who that expire. Okay. He, he bought a storage unit in an auction and found a whole bunch of negatives in it. This woman um, who had, who had taken all these pictures was a hoarder. Uh, so she had all her stuff in these, these storage auction uh, storage places and they got auctioned after she died. Um, she was a career nanny and um, an avid photographer, an amateur her whole life, but she was a fantastic street photographer who carried her on a camera her whole life. She would take her, the kids that she was watching, she would take them downtown. Most of the time she lived in Chicago and she's just got this like incredible archive of life on the streets of Chicago for like decades. Um, at one point she took a trip around the world, but she was, she knew she was good, but there just wasn't ever a way for her to really have her work shown. And she never printed most of it. It was all just mostly on negatives. Wow. And in going through it, uh, this guy, he was able to get more than negatives. Uh, his name's John Maloof. Um, and this stuff was, it, it became acclaimed by, by critics and it's been in exhibitions and there's been a, quite a few books made out of it at this point, as well as the movie. And I was just captivated by, this idea of street photography. I was like, wow, this is such cool stuff. And then hearing some of the people like there's this great photographer, uh, Joel Meyerowitz, uh, he, he is in the film and he talks quite a bit about Vivian Meyer's work and, uh, just, just hearing about this art form that I didn't really know existed. Uh, and I was completely enraptured by it. And I, I just got on the internet and started looking at it all the time and trying to like, find out as much about it. I would go to the library and read books because these are books you couldn't check out. And I would just sit there and pour through photography books. And, um, you know, not too long after I, I got a camera that I wanted to take on the streets and I just started walking around and doing it all the time, every day. I became totally obsessed by it. And um, I, I wasn't very good at first. Uh, I thought I was. Um, oh, yeah. And <laughs> I just didn't know that I wasn't any good, but, um, I, I actually started getting okay. Like after not too long and, um, you know, it's a journey. Right. And, um, I just, I loved it though. I, I, I loved not just making it, but I, I loved looking at it. I loved talking to other people about it. I loved meeting other people who did it. And so, um, now were you already, uh, a, traveler to the degree that you are now or was that part of the photography because i know a lot of times when you're traveling it's to go to art shows and stuff but but i mean you travel more than anyone i know and i know comedians i mean i know people who travel yeah i um 
I was starting to travel as much as I could before this. I mean, I always liked to travel going way back to into my twenties, but, um, just didn't have the, as many opportunities to do it, um, time or money wise. And, uh, even today I still, I can really rarely ever get away for more than a week, but right. I've been to some pretty far away places in a week, but I was, I was traveling and trying to take as many trips as I could. I mean, with my, with my daughter, I can't, too much, but, um, I was doing this before photography, but photography really like opened it up to new possibilities. Like I, I will go to a place now, not just to scuba dive, but like, I'll pick a place if I know some photographers there who might be able right. to show me around and we can go shoot. And, and, I'll and it is a strong community. I see that you are involved in shows all over the world. You're in touch with all these other street photographers. Your, your yeah. work is being featured. Yeah, it really is kind of an international fraternity. And I don't say fraternity to be sexist for me that it's only men, there's, there's women too. But like, there's this, it's like a club. And if you do it, uh, it's like you'll be befriended by and adopted by street photographers anywhere in the world. And I've taken so many trips where uh, I look people up before I go just because I know their work online. And right. I, I enjoy their their photography and then it's so cool to be able to like meet people in places like tel aviv or do they know, ever turn out to be jerks hong kong you know no one's no one's been a jerk yet uh i'm sure some of them are but really street photographers are pretty nice people I, people do it because they like people i think That's i, I want to ask you something that we've talked about before sure. what do you say to the question about the ethics of it when your subjects don't necessarily know that they're being photographed? Well, um, I believe that pretty much anything is fair game in public. Um, when we're out, we're really on camera all the time. There's security cameras watching us. You can't walk down most residential streets without being seen on nowadays on people's doorbells. Um, right. But when you're in the middle of a city, this photo is being snapped all the time by everything. Um, and so I think it's very, it, it's completely ethical to take a photograph of somebody in public without their permission. That's my take on it. Now that said, um, I don't think it's, I don't like publishing photos of people in compromising situations. Okay. Um, that, rob them of dignity, I guess. Um, I don't, you know, take homeless people, for instance. I mean, most of us choose to be outside when, when we're walking around somewhere downtown, it's by choice. But if you really don't have a choice and you're out there because it's the only place you have to live, that's why I rarely photograph homeless people. Um, just kind of, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say I never do though. I mean, Right. Sometimes they may be doing something interesting that says something and they're part of society too. But um, I, I don't see just, just the basic notion of photographing in some, somebody in public when they may not know or don't give you permission. Um, I say that's okay. Um, what if you take a picture of someone and they're really sent, like the, the individual is very central to the photograph. Cause I've seen some of your pictures where that's not the case and somewhere where it is. Mm-hmm. And that picture does very well is featured in a magazine or, you know, mm-hmm. sells at auction. 
Do you feel any debt to that person? Um, well, I guess no. Uh, I mean, most of my work, I, I'm not really shooting for magazines. Um, sometimes stuff gets published. Um, right. That's usually because it's out there uh, on a Creative Commons license and it can be used with attribution as long as they give me credit for it. So um, I guess I'm thankful for some of my subjects who've been in memorable photos. Um, I don't know if I feel indebted to them. Uh, it's a good question. I, 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 you know, if there was a photograph that made a lot of money somehow. Right. Um, but, but I, I take it that hasn't been the case so far. Yeah, that's not really the case with street photography. I mean, um, I've done photo shoots where I, for advertising, where I've been asked to um, give a street photography look to the advertising, right? But then gotcha. I had assistants who would chase down the the subjects and get their permission. <laughs> okay. Waivers, right? After the fact, but they were candid in the beginning. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't really feel indebted to the subjects. That's an interesting question. Maybe I should. Um, <laughs> some of my best pictures are up close and it's their face. I'm and, just thinking um, of Jeffrey Koons, some of his sculptures that were built on photo, uh, based on photographs. He was then later contacted by the photographer saying, okay, well you sold that sculpture for a pretty penny pay up. Yeah. And I think he even lost a couple of cases. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, yeah, it depends. Um, how much you modify it and yeah. Well, I, I, I hope for you, Ken, that you can someday make that Jeffrey Coons money to where that becomes an issue. And yeah. then you can resolve well, if that's it. ever an issue, let's talk again. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're paying for dinner. I have um I have run into some subjects before and I've had people contact me online just as a result of something kind of um blow up on Instagram. For instance, okay. I, I was in Santiago. Uh, well, I guess nothing was last year. Last year just doesn't exist. Let's say 2019. Right. Um, I was in Santiago and I didn't even know, but I, it, it was pride. And um, I stumbled. Well, I, I saw a gaggle of drag queens walking around and I was like, hmm, I wonder. <laughs> I walked up to them and in my, my uh, broken Spanish, I, I said, is it pride? Like, is there a parade? And they're like, yes, follow us. And so there was a massive pride parade in Santiago and those are super fun to shoot. And, um, I just got this picture of this guy standing with this fabulous glittery top and some great makeup. And he's just, he looks great. And, but he's like flanked all behind him is this gigantic row of like riot cops. And oh, wow. And like 20 riot cops with their batons ready to go. They weren't looking menacing. They were just there on duty, but it was a, it was a good juxtaposition. And the thing kind of got a lot of likes on Instagram and somehow the guy found me and I love it when that happens. This happened a few times and he's just like, that's me in that photo, man. Thanks for taking it. Like, and well, that's great. Happy to kind of blow up for something like that, you know? Yeah. So your, uh, your, your photographs are beautiful. Uh, where's the best, I, I have your website is photography.kenwalton.com. Is that the best place for someone to go check them out? You can link to my Instagram and stuff from there, but the best place is probably just Instagram, which is at Ken Walton. Um, How did you get at Ken Walton? How was that not taken? You just get in early. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at Ken Walton on Twitter too. 
I got it. And facebook.com slash Ken Walton. Although mm-hmm. I think you're more active on the others. Yeah. As so, far as photography goes. Yeah. Cool. Um, th- thanks for spending all this time with us. Uh, we've been talking for, uh, an hour and a quarter and I feel like I, I could still ask you a hundred more questions. <laughs> um, but I, I love the photography and I can't wait to see what you do next. Uh, has it been hard for you during this year or, or has this year represented opportunities to catch an unusual view of the city? Well, so I, yeah, I've been in a bit of a funk and, um, one of the things I did four years ago, I started up a street photography festival here in San Francisco. And so that went, um, it was five years ago that went four years in a row and it was a lot of fun and we would get guests and people coming in from all around the world. We had exhibitions around town and that was kind of like one of the highlights of my year. And I had to cancel that this last year. Uh, that's so a bummer. That was a real bummer. And then for months, I wasn't going anywhere. I would sneak out a few times here and there and, and shoot some stuff. Now there actually are quite a few people on the streets, but I just haven't, um, I haven't been shooting much at all. I don't know. I've been staying at home still because of COVID and uh, I do get out and cycle a lot and I see things I want to shoot when I'm on my bike, but that's kind of impossible. But I, I think I need to start getting out more. It'll improve my mood. Um, Rain right now, so it's impossible, but uh, it it feels like such an interesting time to capture as well, even if it's while we're living it. I mean, it's not the most cheerful time (laughs) to capture, but uh, I mean, it's strange. It's just become commonplace to be in a store and I look around and everybody has their face masked, you know? Uh, and, and now I've stopped even going to stores. I read an article that scared me out of grocery stores completely. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and then, and then to go to the park with my kid, you know, we'll walk up and we see other kids playing and it's like, turn around and walk back home, you know, it's such a bummer. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, um, so are you sending your daughter out to get groceries for you? Like, what's your solution? you know it's it's one of those things where we're another ethical question here we're getting our stuff delivered and it's like okay so i've chosen not to go to a grocery store but i'm paying some other person to go take that risk for me right and that feels weird you know so speaking of feeling conflicted about it like i'm getting groceries through amazon now they deliver from whole foods and stuff right and it's this gigantic evil corporation with the most convenient way to get groceries delivered right, at an affordable price. And like, I feel dirty about it every time they bring like a bag that has nothing but like a piece of garlic in it, you know, like an entire, <laughs> <of that. laughs> their, their methods, everything about them is awful. So right. I do try to go to the store still sometimes. And well, one and- thing that's nice is the stores will, you can, you, they have a special parking spot. You can pull up and they'll come actually put it in the back of your car. I have the heard people that are already working there. Yeah, I don't think we do that quite as much in San Francisco, but actually maybe maybe some do. There just aren't spaces here. But uh, Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we Boy, did we. On the show, Keith, I, I had a, a memory of a time that we hung out many years ago. And I don't know if it's okay to share that. Yeah, yeah. But um, you and I, our daughters were quite young. And we hadn't, you know, we hadn't really hung out one on one before, or or at least not very many times. We'd seen each other around a lot, but we decided to to get the kids together when I brought my daughter, uh, Brent, yeah. to Sacramento one time, and we took them to Fairy Tale Town, 
and and, and Funderland um, or whatever that that Funderland, little that's what it's called. yeah it's the uh, the little micro amusement park there. But it's so I love it because it's so like just broke down kitsch. Like I can't believe it even still exists in the two thousands. It, it should be an abandoned amusement park by now, and it's like still in operation. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah, little miniature uh, amusement park. So uh, it was great. I mean, Ren had a good time, and then we. We took the kids out to lunch after this. Okay, but before before we go to lunch, you, uh, I thought you you were being so generous, taking all these photographs, and I'm like, this is great. I'm gonna have all these photographs of my kid having fun, taken by one of the best photographers I know. And then you post online these pictures of the two of them having fun, but I'm sitting in the car behind them. <laughs> You're in the roller coaster car behind them, right? <laughs> and it's literally the creepiest looking photo of me ever. Like an adult man on this roller coaster ride all by himself behind these little girls. With a huge smile on his face. <laughs> <laughs> I still hadn't given up on letting my hair grow long, even though it's thinning, which the the long and thinning combination, it, it's better than a mustache for saying creep. Uh, just, a, just a delightful photograph. So thank you. Thank you for that, Ken. All right. So then we go to lunch. We go to lunch and, you know, I, I'm sitting there at lunch and I probably got a burger or something, but, um, my daughter's a vegetarian and you and, and your daughter are vegans. So I'm, I'm all, vegan. My daughter's just vegetarian. Okay. So she's just vegetarian, but you're all eating to say the least, either veggie burgers or grilled cheeses. Like that's the rest of the table. There's not, right. I'm the only one who's, uh, the blatant carnivore here. And you know, you're all used to the world enough that you realize that other people eat meat. You see people eating burgers around you or whatever. But for some reason, I have to start regaling the kids with the story. I'm one of those guys who just, I, I've eaten a lot of weird things when I go to different countries. Right. Like, I don't know if that's going to be true in the future after the Wuhan bat thing. Right. And, I mean, I've eaten a lot of stuff. And I can't say that if I was in Wuhan a couple of years ago before this happened, that I wouldn't eat a bat. I don't know. Like if I was at the place and it, it, it was cooked right and it looked okay, I might try it just to say that I had, right? Right. I feel like it's uh, hypocritical to only eat certain animals and not eat others. But um, anyway, I'm regaling the table with this story about how I just eaten an armadillo on a trip down <laughs> to Belize. And, and Max, like your daughter, she's almost in tears. And, <laughs> She says, Daddy, I don't want to hear about him eating these critters. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I my God. Off, I said, I'm so sorry, sweetie. <laughs> like, I felt horrible. Like, the fact that them critters. And I realized, yeah, I, I ate critters. That's what I do. <laughs> it just kind of perspective. And I, I don't know. I never really apologized to you properly for that. Later on, I meant to. And. I to well, you, you've made it up to me now by giving me a great story on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me let me wrap things up on that much happier note than us talking about uh, the, the bleak COVID reality we're in. Uh, my guest today has been photographer Ken Walton. Please go hit him up on all his socials. Again, it's real easy. Ken Walton, at Ken Walton on Instagram and Twitter. Facebook, his website, photography.kenwalton.com. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Keith. It was great. Had a good time. All right. I am nice your time. host, Keith Lowell Jensen. My producer is Joe Honor. The art is done by Joe Honor. Our editor and audio engineer is Jack Matrenga. 
Joe and Jack are both with Hyperpixel. Hyperpixel is a production company with a focus on digital marketing and e-commerce, offering daily management of your website, social media accounts, and digital marketing campaigns. Our theme song was done by the great DJ Reel, who is fantastic, and you should go check him out. Once again, thanks to our sponsor, Burley Beverages, burleybeverages.com. And if you haven't already, go watch my comedy special, Not For Rehire, on Amazon Prime. And please leave a review. You have no idea how much that helps with the algorithms and what not. Uh, Thank you once again for joining us. And next week will be a special Valentine's Day edition. Tune in and listen as I interview my wife, uh, who has been my partner for now 28 years. So uh, there should be some good stories in there. Uh, Again, thanks to my guest, Ken Walton, and I will uh, talk to you all next week. (laughs) We'll be right back.